invite you to accompany me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I do intend to bring perhaps several miscellaneous messages on different texts and themes, and then I intend to begin a sequential exposition of a biblical book. Before we read God's word, let's pray. Oh, Father, please help us to set aside all wickedness, all hypocrisy, all disingenuous, disingenuousness, and help us, Lord, to receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. For Christ's sake, amen. 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 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll read the first five verses. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Well, Corinth was a prominent Greco-Roman city in the Polypenesis region southeast of Rome. Paul spent 18 months there on his second missionary journey. And due to its geographic region, the city had a high profile and a booming population. It was economically prosperous. It was famous for its bronze, which some historical records have even said was even better than the gold of many lands. It was also famous for its pagan shrines, for its Olympic games, and especially for its philosophers. It was culturally diverse, but it was thoroughly idolatrous, and it was a central hub for travel throughout the whole Mediterranean world. And because of this, it was frequently visit visited by itinerating Greek philosophers who traveled from one city to another, giving speeches in order to attract followers and to gain fame and profit. The Corinthian culture, in fact, placed high and supreme value on learning and rhetoric. And it, in fact, esteemed worldly wisdom as perhaps the greatest attainment of life. That was the highest aspiration that one could possibly attain to was to become a learned and wise and rhetorically eloquent philosopher. And so Paul goes there. And then he writes. And he refuses to conform to their culture and to their world. He was a man of profound learning, as we know. He was brought up at the feet of uh, one of the greatest rabbis of the day, Gamaliel. 
He was learned in Hebrew. He was learned in Greek. He was learned in both cultures as a Hebrew Hellenist. And judging by the epistles of Paul, he was also a man of superb oratorical powers. In fact, the eloquence of Paul and the rhetorical devices that he uses in his epistles, all these different devices, speaking in propositional form and speaking in the interrogative and speaking in dialogue and speaking with objections and, 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 and further light and, and all these other things that he did in his epistles even surpasses the eloquence of Cicero, who is esteemed as the most eloquent of the Greek philosophers. So the temptation would have been to bedazzle his hearers with eloquence and learning as he taught to them the gospel of Christ. But he chose to resort, he says, to the simple style of plain speech as the best method suited to proclaim a crucified Lord. He wanted to make sure that the converts from Corinth wouldn't be drawn to Christianity because they admired Paul or because they admired men, but rather because they believed the gospel. And Paul knew that God uses the plain, simple, pure preaching of his word to bring his elect to faith. And so he came not vaunted up with pride over his natural gifts, not making a show of his eloquence, but in humility, as he says, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. The fear of God was the dominating influence upon Paul's mind, and it showed itself in all his demeanor and all his speech. He wanted their faith not to be in Paul's abilities, but in God's gospel. That their faith, he says, would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that they would receive the truth of the message that he preached, not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which works effectually in those who believe. And so he says in verse 2, and this is the verse that I want to spend the rest of our time focusing on this morning. He says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so let's unpack these words under three headings. And first of all, determination resolved. We see Paul's determination resolved. He says, for I determined. Now Paul was a man of iron will. And burning zeal. Whatever he said is resolved to do in the service of God, he mobilized all his capacities to do it with all his might. He told the Galatians about his zeal prior to knowing Christ when he was still the unconverted Saul. He said, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. He says, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Even as an unbeliever, his zeal burned with a white-hot heat. But then he says, but what it pleased God, 
who separated him from his mother's womb and called him through his grace to reveal his son in him, immediately Paul began to preach Christ among the Gentiles. And so when he was converted to Christ, he became even more zealous for the truth than he had formerly been against the truth. He brought all the faculties of his soul into alignment with the pursuit of this one thing, to know Christ and to make him known. For I determined, he says, this speaks of purposeful resolution and conscientious discipline of his mind, his heart, his mouth, his will, his resolve, to focus on this one thing above any and every other thing. This determination involved the wholehearted subjection of his entire being to Christ so that all would be oriented toward Jesus Christ as the most excellent object worth knowing. For I determined, literally means in the Greek, I judged, I judged. Krino is the verb that it uses there. What he's saying is, I passed a judgment in this matter as a definitive and final verdict. I am not changing my mind. My will is resolved. And I am setting it like steel in this matter. This is an ultimate determination. He judged it necessary to know nothing but Christ. And not only necessary, but beneficial and virtuous and supremely excellent. I purposed, I resolved, I set out to do this one thing as my ultimate ambition in life and among you. Depressed hard to press hard after the knowledge of Christ and to effuse and spread the fragrance of Christ to the whole wide world. And therefore, he's saying, I will focus on Christ. I will contemplate Christ. I will set my mind on Christ and bend my will to Christ and speak often of Christ. I will preach and teach of Christ. And I will make Christ the foundation of all my learning. Christ is the core of my theology. Christ is the heart of my ideology. Christ is the heart of my worldview. And I will make Christ the glorious diadem that crowns all my teaching. Christ is the sum and substance of the apostles' doctrine. And Christ is, in fact, the center of the Bible. He's the key that unlocks both testaments. He shines the light of his fullness upon every doctrine of the word and illuminates it into its fullest revelation and disclosure. Hence, Christ is the lens through which we make sense of not only the word of God, the scriptures, but also of the world around us. And Christ supplies to us the best and most meaningful answers to the ultimate issues of life. The simplest believer that has embraced Jesus Christ in truth has the ultimate answers to the grand questions that have perplexed the world's greatest philosophers for centuries. Oh, the knowledge of Christ that's more precious than life itself. He's the reason we exist, brethren, and he furnishes us with the purpose for living. 
Adorning and magnifying the doctrine of Christ must be our chief pursuit in life. There's no other life worth living for. And even on the brink of death, the well-lived life will be able to reflect back and to say, I determined not to know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was the invigorating impulse that made my heart throb and thrive. He was the electrifying vitality that animated my actions. He has been my profoundest satisfaction in life. And pursuing him has been my chief aim that has trumped every other goal and every other pursuit in life. Can you say that? Can you say that? Can you say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is therefore gain. The supremacy and infinite sufficiency of Christ was everything to Paul. And here's what I want us to catch. If the apostle determined to give such priority to communicating the knowledge of Christ to the churches, then it must be God's will for his people to know Christ above all. Thus our determination, brethren, should echo Paul's since we understand that his determination as an inspired apostle is in fact a revelation of the will of God for us. So, dear friends, I exhort you, I exhort you in the name of Jesus Christ to make that determination as well. Determine to receive the revelation of Christ that Paul so determined to know and to communicate. Be as solicitous to receive it as Paul was to give it. And we know that Paul didn't only teach the knowledge of Christ. He first of all pursued it. He taught it out of the fullness of the personal, intimate, experiential knowledge of the Savior. His teaching was the overflow of his personal communion with the crucified Son of God. Remember what he said in Philippians 3? He said, I count all things loss, all my past attainments, all my past learning in Judaism, all the strivings to, 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 to observe the, the letter of the law. I count it as loss, all things loss, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, it says. Now, that Greek word can be translated either as trash, rubbish, or even dung. He's saying all that's fit for the dung pile. He says that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Isn't that what our Lord said in John 17, 3? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He says, this is the true God and eternal life. Isaiah 53 11 says, 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. By his knowledge, through the personal, saving, experiential knowledge of him, comes the saving efficacy of his spirit to redeem us from our despair. And God says in Jeremiah 9, and this is a text that's going to strike close to home as a, when it comes to the context of our text in 1 Corinthians 2. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. And if you notice in the text of your Bible, typically our English translations will capitalize the four letters of the name Lord, indicating that in the Hebrew text, what lies behind it is what we call the tetragrammaton, the four consonants that constitute the Hebrew name for the covenant God, Yahweh. He's saying, I am Yahweh. The greatest pursuit in life, the greatest thing you could possibly know is that I am Yahweh. And so scripture uses the personal, intimate name for God. We must know the name of God, the nature of God, the attributes of God, the will of God, and especially the saving knowledge of God, his redeeming love, his blazing holiness, his sublime beauty. And if you look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verses 30 to 31, leading up to our text, Paul takes and applies God's declaration in Jeremiah 9 directly to Jesus Christ. Where he quotes that verse and he culminates in verse 31, let him who glories glory only in the Lord, only in Yahweh. And yet in verse 30, he's speaking of Christ. Christ is the one true and living God. For the Father and the Son, though distinguished in person, are identical in essence, and they share the same divine nature. So do you know him, dear friend? Do you know him? I'm not asking if you merely know about him. You can read your Bible. You can memorize the catechism. You can cross all your theological T's and dot all your theological I's. You can accumulate all kinds of biblical knowledge in your head and yet still be a stranger to the personal saving knowledge of God in your soul. And so do you know him? Do you know God in Christ? Not as a God afar off, but a God who is near and dear and precious to you. That's what Peter said. You know, that was Spurgeon's first sermon that he ever preached as a young man. What Peter said, to you who believe, Christ is precious. He's precious to believers. Is he precious to you? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Redeemer, your Shepherd, your Consoler, and your Friend? Or as Paul says, do you know him as your wisdom and righteousness, 
and sanctification and redemption. I'm not asking you if you serve him, but if you know him, you can serve the church and you can serve people and you you can do it all quite commendably. But serving him doesn't necessarily mean that you know the redeeming love of God in Christ. Well, I do trust that most of us do in fact know him in a saving way. But brethren, we must be careful not to allow the cares and the anxieties and the entanglements of life to choke out our determination to pursue the knowledge of the living Christ. Make Paul's determination your own. This one thing I do, he said, and renew that resolution every single day. Say, whatever I do this day, I must, I must, for the sake of my life, for the sake of my soul, for the sake of the sanity of my mind, I must get a fuller glimpse of the heart of my precious Savior this day. Without neglecting my vocation and my family and my church, I must draw nearer to Christ this day. My soul hungers for a deeper, fuller acquaintance with the goodness of his dying love and the power of his risen glory. And of course, to do this right, you're going to have to discriminate. You're going to have to discriminate between duties and pursuits. You're going to have to discriminate between different kinds of knowledge that you pursue in life, between even good things and the best thing. Which leads us to our next point, discrimination drawn. We see discrimination drawn in our text, and this discrimination is drawn particularly in the words, not to know anything among you except, not to know anything except. The apostle discriminates here between the knowledge of Christ and the knowledge of every other thing. The knowledge of Christ is superior to all because the glory of Christ makes all lesser glories fade away in comparison. It's like Robert Murray McShane said, and if I've quoted this here before, please pardon me, but it's such a glorious quote. He said, when you look at the sun, all the things of this earth fade out of your vision or they fade out of your periphery. And when you behold the glory of the crucified Son of God, all the things of this world grow, all the things of this world grow strangely dim. They fade away out of your vision. They become subsidiary and relatively unimportant in comparison. Christ becomes greater than your ego greater than the pursuit of self, greater than the satisfaction of the desires of the flesh, and greater than any other end that you could possibly seek in this world. Now, Paul was speaking to the Corinthians, right? And in their culture, as we said, they highly prized the wisdom of this world. And not all the wisdom of this world is necessarily bad. The wisdom of this world, insofar as it's correct, is good in itself, and it's like Augustine said, all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. But their problem was the matter with which they idolatry, they idolize this, 
this wisdom and this knowledge, not to mention all the error and paganism with which it was fraught. But whereas their greatest respect went out to their greatest philosophers, Paul says all that's but dung in comparison with the knowledge of Christ. And when he says what he says, discriminating between the knowledge of Christ and all this other knowledge, I think he has two things in particular in mind. First of all, all human wisdom must be denied whenever it comes in competition with the doctrine of Christ. It must be denied when it comes in competition with the doctrine of Christ. The knowledge of Christ is the only saving knowledge and the only knowledge that justifies the ungodly, the only knowledge that breaks the bars of sin and sets the captive free. No other knowledge can renew and remake us. No other knowledge can transform us in the inner man. No other knowledge can make our souls on this earth to feast on heavenly delight. The itinerating sophists of Paul's day they would travel from city to city giving eloquent speeches. And the most knowledgeable and articulate of them could gain everything this world had to offer. But Paul says only the knowledge of Christ will make you rich in the world to come. And not famous among men, the knowledge of Christ will often, often make you infamous among men. But rather than making you famous among men, it will cause you to be acknowledged by God and before his holy angels in glory. It's the best of all knowledge. And second, all human knowledge must yield when it comes in comparison to the doctrine of Christ. It must be denied when it comes in competition with the doctrine of Christ. And all human wisdom must yield when it comes in comparison to the doctrine of Christ. The knowledge of Christ is superlative, which means it's the best of all knowledge. When Christ speaks, all the wisdom and knowledge of this world must bow down and do homage to the Son of God. In Christ are contained all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3. More wisdom than, than in the world's greatest philosophers. More knowledge than in the world's greatest scholars. To know Christ is to be truly wise unto salvation, Paul says. It's to be truly learned. To know Christ equips your mind with, tr with truth that transcends and surpasses all natural human learning. So dear brother, dear sister, your wisdom in Christ is greater in essence than all the wisdom of this world combined. Just think about that. It's like Paul said, even the foolishness of God, epitomized in the cross, is wiser than the wisdom of men. Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verses 18 and following. Starting at verse 18, notice what the apostle says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? 
Where is the disputer of this age? It's like Paul's taunting the philosophers. He's saying, let the wisest, let the most learned among them stand up. Their wisdom, their knowledge pales in comparison with the glory of the knowledge of Christ. Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, that his natural reason can never disclose to us the way of eternal salvation and the true personal saving knowledge of God. That comes only through the scriptures. And all of God's revelation mediated through the scriptures comes to us mediated by the person of the word. For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He says, the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, that is those who are effectually called by the supernatural work of God's Holy Spirit, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's one of my favorite parts of the scripture. There's just so much glory there. And so he says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, does this mean that Christ was literally the only thing that Paul ever talked about? I don't think so, because he often had to make travel arrangements, do monetary transactions, sell tents, deal with church problems. Nothing new there, right? (laughs) So it's important to understand his words here in their proper light. He's not saying this with naivete about all the complexities of daily life. His words are somewhat hyperbolic, means, meaning he's using intentional exaggeration to lay emphasis on this point. But his declaration here is not simplistic, nor is it reductionistic. And I think this is important to clarify because many of us tend to misunderstand it. First of all, this is not a simplistic declaration. And I say this because of the way that Paul deals with problems in the church of Corinth. There was pride and boasting in men. There is sectarianism, divisions, immorality, marital problems, idolatry, abuse of spiritual gifts. And he doesn't feign to address the problems. Note this. He doesn't pretend to address the problems just by citing a one-sentence simplistic gospel formula. Christ was crucified. Christ was crucified. What are you guys doing? He rather addresses the problems with what he calls the wisdom of God, thoroughly integrated with the theology of the gospel, epitomized and pinnacled, in Jesus Christ crucified. Paul gets to the roots of the problems 
and addresses those roots with the theology and the grace of the gospel and of the doctrine of Christ. And as he does, he draws out specific aspects of different facets of the truth of the gospel together with all its implications, and he brings them to bear on the issues. Yet all his dealings are grounded in the gospel, and his counsel to them is profound and gospel-centered at the same time. But notice that his declaration isn't reductionistic either, if we understand it in the light of the whole book. He doesn't just reductionistically pretend that the doctrine of the atonement stated in its propositional form is the solution to all their complexities. He doesn't downplay the problems in Corinth and the issues that they raise. He doesn't say that those issues are really not issues to reckon with. But he doesn't address the problems with no regard for the doctrine of Christ either. His instruction to them is neither simplistic nor reductionistic. It's a full-orbed, thorough, comprehensive gospel theology applied experientially to the Corinthians, personally, ecclesiastically, and societally, that is, with regard to society. And this is instructive for us. We can learn a lot from this because it shows us that in Christ there's a fullness of truth with which we can address all the problems and sin issues that we face. Every problem that gives occasion to some temptation or some sin to become manifest, whether that be sin in itself or sin in its consequences or both, all the brokenness of our fallen world meets its ultimate remedy in Jesus Christ and only in Christ. The problem of church divisions meets its remedy in Christ. The problem of fornication meets its solution in Christ. The problem of inordinate esteem for worldly wisdom meets its solution in Christ. And we can expand this principle. The problem of depression, despair, Temptations to suicide meet their ultimate solution and resolution only in Jesus Christ. The problem of covetousness meets its solution only in Christ. The problem of addiction meets its solution only in Christ. The problem of anxiety meets its ultimate solution only in Christ. And we could go on and on. And I don't mean that in a simplistic nor reductionistic way. But what I'm saying is that and only in Christ, only in him, is the ultimate redemptive solution and grace and forgiveness and power by which we can overcome our sin problems. And by the way, brethren, that's why biblical counseling and not fallen human pop psychology is God's chosen way to helping us through our problems. Because the psychology of this world is, that's based on human learning, it has no ultimate redemptive remedy for our problems. It can sometimes help us as far as it goes. And sometimes it's, it can be really helpful. But it cannot apply a true redemptive remedy to the root of our problems apart from God's redemptive revelation in Christ. 
So if we would see true success in the Christian life and flourish in God's will for our lives, we must devote our best energies to pursuing the knowledge of Christ, a personal knowledge that's not only understood, but embraced by faith and applied experientially and comprehensively to our lives. Devoting it all to Christ. Devoting it all to the knowledge of Christ. Which leads us to our third point. Devotion declared. The apostle says, I determine not to know anything among you, he says, and note these words, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is because Christ is the apex of God's self-revelation to mankind. His death on the cross is the one and only way to be saved from the guilt, pollution, power, and presence of sin. Paul's focal point was the person of Christ. He says Jesus Christ, that's his person and his work, and him crucified, the person and work of Christ. His eye was single and fixed on the glories of the Savior. All that the apostle taught was devoted to Christ. Hence, Paul is declaring his devotion by lifting the doctrine of Christ on high. And you know, Paul says the name Jesus over 220 times in his epistles. Do we write letters like that? (laughs) He says Christ over 390 times. And that doesn't include all the personal pronouns referring to Christ and all the other titles and descriptions by which the apostle refers to him. And neither does it include the epistle to the Hebrews, which I personally am convinced that Paul also wrote. The doctrine of Christ was integrated and interwoven into everything the apostle taught because he taught it out of supreme affection and reckless abandon and devoted worship to his Savior. Paul loved to declare the deity and humanity of Christ. He loved to declare the history, the teachings, and miraculous works of Christ. He loved to speak of the names and titles of Christ. He gives them some unique names and titles in the Bible. He loved to speak of the attributes of Christ, the offices of Christ as a prophet, priest, and king, the humiliation and exaltation of Christ, culminating in his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and session at God's right hand. He loved to speak of the communion and fellowship of Christ's love. He loved to speak of the supernatural strength and joy of the indwelling spirit of Christ. And you know, Paul, even by revelation, renames the Holy Spirit in his epistles. And he calls him the Spirit of Christ. For Paul, the Holy Spirit has now become the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit who reveals Christ, who imparts the living Christ and his saving power to the souls of men. He loved to speak of the infinite merit of the sacrifice of Christ, of the grace of Christ that breaks the chains of sin. And while Paul preached a full, whole total Christ, he especially loved to declare what his Lord accomplished on the cross. Notice the last three words of verse 5, or verse 2, verse 2 rather. And 
him crucified and him crucified. Now, Paul can accu accurately be described as a theologian of the cross. His specialty was the doctrine of the atonement. The apostle in his epistles draws out what was done at the cross with language and concepts that are loaded with significance. He has an uncommon way of using sometimes a single word or a single phrase and packing it with so much substance about the meaning of the cross that a lifetime of study couldn't even begin to scratch the surface or plumb the depths of the glory of it. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, he says, Christ is our redemption. Redemption. Redemption comes only at the price of blood. We were enslaved to sin, to Satan, to the world, to the flesh, and Christ's death sets us free from sin and death and makes us willing love slaves and servants of God. In Colossians 1.14, Paul portrays Christ as our atonement or expiation because he says, in him we have the forgiveness of sins, the free, full, unconditional forgiveness of sins by unilateral grace alone appropriated by faith given to us granted to us by the gift of the spirit every sin you've ever committed believer every sin of thought word and deed every sin of commission and omission every besetting sin and every scandalous sin if you're truly in christ every single sin has been blotted out in blood the blood of the crucified Savior. Romans 3.25, Paul says, Christ is our propitiation, propitiation, which means a substitutionary sacrifice that bore the penalty of our sin and rendered satisfaction to divine justice in order to replace the wrath that hanged over us with grace and eternal favor from God. That's glorious. Romans 5.11, Christ is our reconciliation, the apostle says. We were at enmity with God in our rebellion. As he says, we were enemies in our minds through wicked works. And God himself in his justice and holiness was opposed to us in his judgment. But Christ, Christ has ripped the veil in two and brought peace between man and God through the blood of the cross. The cross of Christ has an all-sufficient manifold fullness to it that addresses every aspect of our sin and fallenness. It meets our need with overabounding grace and favor from God. And so Paul uses all these words, atonement, expiation, reconciliation, redemption, propitiation, plus a whole bunch of other descriptions of the cross of Christ in order to shine the light of the revelation of the Spirit upon the cross to hold it up as it were like a diamond or like a prism in the beaming rays of the sun and turning it in order that we could see every, every beaming light of glory, every facet of it and fully appreciate the extent and, and glory of it. The apostles' theology of the cross gives light and hope to a world filled with darkness and despair, does it not? For the death of Christ is a life of the world. 
That's how Paul saw Christ crucified. Christ crucified is my life. That's why he says in Colossians 3, when Christ, who is our life, appears, we shall appear with him in glory. Christ doesn't just have our life. Christ doesn't just give us life. Christ is our life. He is our life. He is our all in all. Are we making the virtue of Christ's death our own by the ongoing, daily, moment-by-moment appropriation of personal faith? That's the question for us. And so let's tie things together and wrap this up. I want to commend to you that you make this yours. Make Paul's declaration yours. His determination, his discrimination, and his devotion that he speaks of here in this text. Make it yours. Determine to know Christ above all things. Discriminate between all that would compete with the knowledge of Christ and the supremacy of Christ in your heart and affections. And devote your whole being to pursuing the knowledge of the crucified one as your chief end in life. So let me offer some practical helps. First of all, make sure, and this is basic, make sure that you've made this determination itself in the first place. Make the determination to seek the knowledge of Christ as your greatest goal in life and to be growing daily and consistently in the knowledge of Christ. Determine to make growing in the knowledge of Christ your number one daily, lifelong priority. And then jealously guard its place of priority in your life against all intrusion because intrusions will certainly come. Intrusions from all unlawful things like besetting sins and also intrusions from lawful things like activities that are neutral or even good in themselves but can become idols when they usurp the supremacy of Christ in your mind and affections. May God spare us from being like Martha in the story, who is busy about so many things in serving Christ that she had no time to sit at the feet of Christ and learn from him and drink in his teaching. You know, back in that day, to sit at the feet of a rabbi entailed be, being a disciple or, or a learner, to, to, to drink from his lips, to receive from his teaching. And that's what Mary did. And then Christ said that Mary was the one who chose the one thing needful. The one thing needful. Oh, we, we think so many things are needful, do we not? And in a relative sense, they are. But in the absolute sense, only one thing is needful. That's to learn of the school of Christ, to drink in his teaching, to let it pour like refreshing living water on the thirsty ground of our souls. So make that determination not to let a single day pass without conscious effort to pursue the knowledge of Christ and then ruthlessly discriminate against all that would compete and intrude. And second, don't just make the determination, but use the means that God has graciously provided to prosper and enable your growth in that knowledge. 
It's not enough just to determine because then we don't follow through. But you have to determine, then, then you have to put hands and feet to the determination. You have to put mind and will and resolve to the determination. Brethren, our Lord has made ample provision for us through the use of his appointed means. Paul here is speaking about the preaching of the word as his means of grace. And the revelation of the word in the scriptures, the wisdom of God, that's the primary means of grace. So let us not neglect the means, but rather pursue it with all diligence and zeal. Pursue the knowledge of Christ through the scriptures. You know, Jonathan Edwards, um, called America's greatest theologian in retrospect, when he was 19 years old, he wrote a series of 70 resolutions that define uh, the goals that he sought to live by, and they really summarize the life of piety. He wrote them in 1723, and they get at the heart of what it means to live a life of devotion to Christ. And I want to commend to you what he wrote in his 28th resolution. Listen to this. Resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself growing in the knowledge of the same. Study the scriptures daily, in other words, and consistently as a habit, as a discipline, in such a way that I may perceive myself, that I may be cognizant and conscious of the fact that I'm actually growing in my knowledge of the scriptures. Because you can't grow in the knowledge of Christ if you don't know, grow in the knowledge of the scriptures. And so pursue Christ more fully by pursuing the word more diligently. And pray. Prayer. Pursue the knowledge of Christ through prayer. I know this is basic, but it is vital and it is foundational. Paul prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to the church the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. He was praying for the revelation of divine knowledge because it's not only scripturally mediated, but it's supernaturally imparted. Pray that the Spirit would make the Word come alive to you. Or rather, the Word is already alive. It's a living Word. So pray that you may come alive to the Word and that you may respond to it with affinity and with faith. As you study the word, pray that God would shine the light of his glory into the depths of your mind and pray for more and more the revelation of the glory of Christ to your mind, your heart, and your soul. And don't just pray before you read the scriptures, but pray while you're reading the scriptures, intermingling reading with short, fervent prayers, crying out to God, saying, Oh, that I may see my Savior in these pages. Oh, that I may behold him there. Oh, that I may catch a glimpse of his glory and be transformed by it and walk away from my study of the scriptures and the this time of prayer truly and permanently transformed. And pursue also the knowledge of Christ through the church and through the fellowship of the church with godly believers and the corporate assembly of the saints. Christ's revelation of himself is given in fuller measure by the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12. And in fellowship with believers who are in Christ, his love, 
his gifts, his blessings are imparted in unique ways that cannot be experienced in solitude. They cannot. So let the cross be the center of your fellowship. Pursue Christ with the other lambs of his fold rather than wandering off into dangerous solitude. And as the cross is the center of your fellowship and as your union in Christ is the mutual bond by which you are united together with the other members of your body, let your own interests be crucified to show love and concern for brethren in practical ways. That's the way of Christ. That's the way of the cross. It's the way of servanthood. It's the way of humility. It's the way of loving others as Christ loved us. Let the love of the cross season your speech, season your deeds, and season your constant prayers for your brethren. And when your brethren offend you, let the cross crucify your own pride and selfish ambition and personal interests. And strive to be of one mind. And when you're fellowshipping with other believers as well, be like Paul. Speak of Christ. Speak often of Christ. Speak of what he's done for your soul. Speak of what he's done in your home. Speak of what he's done in your workplace. Speak of what he's doing in the world. Speak often of Christ. Fill your conversation with Christ. First, fill your heart so that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth would speak. But let your conversation be Bible-saturated and Christ-centered so that you may inculcate in your brethren also a greater affection and fuller knowledge of Jesus Christ. And finally, and this is to bring it all home, I would commend to you that you devote some time every day to meditating on Christ's passion on his sufferings, on his death, on the great love that he exemplified upon the cross. Make the determination of the text a reality in the inner life of your mind. His death is the object of our faith. It's only in his death that we die to our own righteousness and are made to live in the presence of God. And so meditate on the doctrine of the atonement. Study some good, solid, reformed book on the doctrine of the atonement. The older ones are better, usually. And pray over it and ponder it and let it transform your mind and let it just amaze your heart with the sublimity of the great love of the Father manifested on the cross of the Son. And let it mold your life into a cruciform shape into the image of the crucified Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, when we tremble under a sense of our sins and our guilt, the terrors of the judge and the curses of the law, help us to look upon a crucified Christ as a remedy for all our miseries. We thank you, Father, that his cross has procured a crown, that his passion has expiated our transgression, that his death has disarmed the law, and that his blood has washed our souls and made us white as snow. We thank you that his death and resurrection is a destruction of our enemies, the spring of our happiness, the eternal testimony of your unfailing love. 
So inculcate in us this grace that we may determine with ourselves along with Paul to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Amen.